0: Welcome to Practical Christian Living. Someone said the problem with the living sacrifice is it keeps crawling off the altar. And that's true. But I think the problem with the living sacrifice is it hurts. Once that animal was dead, it was dead while it was being sacrificed. But you and I offer our body to God as a living sacrifice. And it hurts.
1: We are called to give our lives to God as a sacrifice because He sent His Son to do just that for us. But becoming a living sacrifice is not always easy. For some believers, it will literally mean losing their lives. For many others, it may mean hard, painful times. But to suffer for Christ brings Him glory. With more from 1 Peter 2, 4 through 12, here's Robert Furrow, pastor of Calvary, Tucson.
0: Aaron and the high priest and the priest that would minister are a type of a royal priesthood. Now, why are you guys a royal priesthood? How does royalty work? You have the son of a king or a relative of a king who becomes the king, and then a relative of that king who becomes a king. So you and I are a royal priesthood because we have been adopted into the family of God. Because John 1.12 tells us that whoever receives him, he gives the power to become a child of God even to those who believe in his name so that you and I are royalty. Ladies, you are princesses. For the real young gals that might be here, I don't know if we got anybody four or five years old, but they're all about princesses, right? You are a royal priesthood. For us, we're like, we are, we are princes of the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And when you think of the way that a prince was supposed to live, if his dad was a king that had honor and had integrity, and you think of the way that a prince was supposed to live, you and I, as sons of the king of kings, are a royal priesthood. Now, the priesthood, it wasn't that long ago that you and I spent months together going through the book of Leviticus, and I applaud you once again for making it all the way through that study with us. It was good, and it was tough, but we saw a few things about the priesthood. In fact, the book of Leviticus is all about the priesthood. It's all about the Levites. It's instructions to the Levites, and all about the priesthood. And you remember, first of all, we've already seen this, that the priests were chosen by God. God said, I want you to bring Aaron and his sons to the gate of the tabernacle and wash them down. They were chosen. God's the one that chose them, just as God, again, chose you. You are not a royal priesthood because you decided it. You are a royal priesthood because God chose you to be a royal priesthood. That should mean something to us. That should help us in our daily walk with Christ. It should help us in our integrity to know that God chose me to be part of the royal priesthood. The second thing that he did was have them scrubbed down, which is really funny when you think about it. He said, bring Aaron and his sons to the gate of the tabernacle and wash them down. Now, I don't know why they had to have a good public scrubbing, but I like to take my baths in private. I don't really want to go to the gate of the tabernacle and have all of the children of Israel gather together while I get scrubbed down. I don't know whether God didn't trust him to do a good job in private, so he had to do it publicly. But certainly, the public cleansing of the priests speaks of the cleansing of the blood of Jesus, which is public. We confess Jesus. We let people know that we are born again. We said it this Sunday. There are no 007 Christians. There are no believers who say, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm one secretly. I go around and do my work secretly behind the scenes. We're all out in the public and we have all been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. And I want to say like those priests who were cleansed, you're cleansed completely. You're cleansed totally. Their cleansing was a symbol of their sin being removed so they could now offer those sacrifices. So they had to be brought to the gate of that temple. They were then stripped down, even as you and I are stripped down from our old lives, from who we were, we give ourselves to Christ, then we're chosen, and then we're cleansed. Now, they were not only chosen, and they were not only cleansed at that gate, but they were appointed. God gave them a job to do, even as God has given you a job to do. God's appointed us. As a royal priesthood, we have a job to do. Now, there's a general sense in which we all have the same job. All of us are called to preach the gospel, All of us are called to be the light of the world. All of us are called to be the salt of the earth. All of us are called to be the church that has the keys to the kingdom that lets people in. And we all do it differently. Some water, some plant seeds, some harvest. But we're all called to that. But then you guys have also been appointed to your own task. Later on, Peter will say in 1 Peter chapter four, as each one of you has received a gift, minister that gift to one another. So we've all been appointed a gift God gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then he gives us the gifts of the Spirit that we can minister those gifts to one another. It goes on to say there, so God will get the glory, not with our own ability, but with the ability that God supplies. So God gets the glory because he has appointed us. So those priests in Leviticus were chosen, they were washed and they were appointed. You and I have been chosen, we've been washed and we've been appointed, but they were not just chosen, washed and appointed. They were chosen, washed, appointed and instructed. They were told exactly what they were supposed to do. And that is where the book of Leviticus bogs down. How many sacrifices did you and I read and study about? How many times did we read that you would take your sacrifice to the priest, the priest would kill the sacrifice and then he would cut the sacrifice apart and then he would take the fatty lobes of the liver and the fatty lobes of the kidneys and he would break and we read this over and over again. Then they were to take the blood and they were to sprinkle the blood around the altar, they were to go and sprinkle the blood on the door that entered into the holy place, they were to sprinkle some back at the gate, they were to pour the blood out of certain sacrifices in certain places, they were to do it slightly different from each sacrifice that was given, but we were given details on every sacrifice. God gave them instruction so they would do it his way. What's the first thing that the first two sons of Aaron did? Do you remember? They offered strange fire to God and God killed them in the presence of himself. They offered strange fire. Now there's various ideas as to exactly what that meant, but most likely they had a censer. They were to put some of the incense in the censer and the the incense represented the prayers of the saints and they were used the fire from the altar to be that which fueled the prayers of the saints. And so they probably brought their own fire. Instead of thinking, well, I'm just going to use the the coals from the altar, they used the coals from a campfire, outside the gate maybe. And they brought strange fire to God, and God killed them. the very next thing God says there is, listen, when the sons of Aaron are ministering before me, I want them to not drink before they do it. So there's a strong possibility these guys got drunk, and they did something that was inappropriate, why they were drunk. But it tells us that God gives us instruction. If God teaches us how we're supposed to do something, then we want to stick with that. We don't have this freedom to preach what we want to preach and say what we want to say. We have instruction, and we want to take what's whispered into our ear, and Jesus said, preach it openly. We want to take what's given to us in secret, and we want to shout it from the rooftops. But we are obligated to speak the things that Jesus gave us to speak. When Peter was warned, and remember this is Peter who wrote this, when Peter was warned, you better not preach in the name of Jesus anymore, Peter said, who should we obey? Men or God? And then he said, we can't help but preach the things we've heard. He didn't say, we can't help but preach the things whatever we want to preach. But we can't help but preach the things we've heard So our goal is to desire the pure milk of the word that we can grow by, that we can learn what God gives us and how God instructs us and that we can live our lives in this royal priesthood the way that God has instructed us. So they were chosen, they were washed, they were appointed and they were instructed and then they were anointed. They took some of the oil. This oil had been used to anoint the the altar, to anoint the tabernacle, to anoint the holy place, to anoint the, the incense altar, to anoint the candlestick, to anoint the table of showbread. And now some of that oil was taken over and it was poured over the heads of the priests. This was a symbol to us of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. That if we are a royal priesthood, it is not going to be done by the power of the flesh. It is going to be done by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That the Holy Spirit is poured out upon us and Jesus said to the disciples, tarry in Jerusalem for you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and into the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, not only were they chosen, not only were they washed, not only were they appointed, not only were they instructed, not only were they anointed, but then they had to go and give the sacrifices. That's what they did. You remember I said, read this, and we're gonna come back to it, back at verse five. He says, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices. As a royal priesthood, what good would a royal priesthood be if it didn't offer sacrifices? That's what a priesthood does. That's why you have a priest, because a priest is to give sacrifices. Now, Jesus is the greatest example of a priest. He's our high priest. We might be a royal priesthood, but he's the high priest. In Hebrews I think it was Paul who wrote Hebrews, but whoever it was, said, why do you want a high priest that's of men when you have a high priest like Jesus who can completely and totally remove sin? So Jesus is our high priest and Jesus gave his own body as a sacrifice. We as a royal priesthood do the same. Not in the same way he did. Some of them were crucified and in the same way gave their bodies as a living sacrifice. But you and I are called to give our lives, our bodies literally as a sacrifice. Romans 12, 1 and 2, give your bodies as a living sacrifice. Someone said the problem with the living sacrifice is it keeps crawling off the altar. And that's true. But I think the problem with the living sacrifice is it hurts. Once that animal was dead, it was dead while it was being sacrificed. But you and I offer our body to God as a living sacrifice. And it hurts. And so Paul said, that I might know you in the power of your resurrection and in the fellowship of your suffering. When is the last time that you prayed that prayer? I'll guarantee you a lot more people here have prayed that I might know you in the power of your resurrection than have prayed in the fellowship of your suffering. In fact, I don't pray. Lord, I want to know you in the fellowship of your suffering. When I pray, I think, God, I've suffered enough. It's time for me to be on the other end of that. We'll take that thing up now. I don't want to have to suffer anymore. But we give our lives as a living sacrifice. Now, you might say, "Well, huh, I don't want to do that. God chose me to be a priest. He chose me. He cleansed me. He appointed me. He anointed me. He instructed me. And I don't want to give my body as a living sacrifice. But here's the thing. Your life is going to be a sacrifice one way or another. Your life is going to be consumed either for your own pleasures Or your life is going to be consumed for the living God. You're going to have pain that is going to be for nothing. Or you are going to have pain that God can use for his glory. There's no escaping it. You are being consumed now. Your life, it will one day come to an end. We've said it before. It's so true. The statistics on death are staggering. One out of one person dies. We all one day will face death. If Jesus doesn't come back for us, we will face that last moment of our lives one day. And your life is putting up, as it were, an aroma now. If it's lived for yourself, it's an aroma that stinks in the nostrils of God. If it's for him, it's a sweet-smelling aroma. So we are this royal priesthood that has been chosen by God and anointed and powered and cleansed and all of those things so that we can give the sacrifices of our lives. Lord, here it is. Use me. And use me so the people around me can know you. Use me so you can be glorified and uplifted in all that we do. Now, not only are we a chosen generation and a royal priesthood, but the third thing he says here is that we're a holy nation. A holy nation. The idea of being holy isn't that we are becoming holy. There is a sense in which you are. The Bible talks about positional holiness and practical holiness at least theologians talk about that and there are certain scriptures that talk about both positional holiness is that the moment that i ask to be forgiven for my sins that god forgives me right now you are a holy nation now when you go out and walk tomorrow you need to be forgiven again or the next day or the next day you need to be forgiven again Because that holiness is being worked out in your life in a practical way, and you are being sanctified in Christ, and he's making you more and more holy if you're walking with him and walking before him. But right now, you are holy. When I was 18 years old or so, I went to a church that was part of the holiness movement. They were an assembly of God church that had the holiness teachings in them. The holiness movement was a movement that taught that it was possible to gain perfection while you were here on the earth. Now... It's interesting that First John says, if you say you have no sin, then you are a liar, right? So there was a guy that taught in the church that taught that he hadn't sinned in 12 years. The interesting thing was that he was lying when he said that. He was sinning when he said he hadn't sinned in 12 years because he had sinned. But I remember as a young man really wanting to give God purity and struggling with it, failing over and over again. There's a message that was taught climbing the cliffs of insanity. No, that wasn't it. Climbing the cliffs of purity. That you would climb this cliff and really climb up and reach finally the plateau of holiness. And when you reach the plateau of holiness, that's when the power of God would shoot out of your fingertips. Ah, ah, (laughs) Because you'd gotten to that holy place where God could use you. Well, in my frustration of not being able to obtain that place, was my first exposure to Chuck Smith's teaching, Pastor Chuck's teachings on grace. And I'll never forget him saying that you, thinking you have used up the grace of God, like God can't forgive you and can't use you anymore, is like a little bird landing on the ocean, afraid to take a drink because he thinks he's gonna drink it all up. And beginning to understand that I didn't need to climb the cliffs of insanity because there was a helicopter ride called the grace of God that brought you to that cliff. At the moment that I say, Lord, I'm sorry. I didn't want to do it. Maybe I did want to do it, but I don't want to, didn't want to do it. Lord, I'm sorry. Forgive me. At that moment, I will never be more holy. I can't add to it. There's nothing from that moment that I am forgiven by the blood of Jesus that I can add to make myself more righteous or add to make myself more holy. At that moment, God is seeing me through the righteousness of Christ. And how are you ever going to add to the righteousness of Christ? It was the righteousness of Christ that Jesus had his relationship with God based upon. There was nothing separating them. And if that righteousness has been given to you, then there's nothing you can do to improve on it. You are a holy nation. At the moment you ask him to forgive you and you walk with him, you are that royal priesthood and you are that holy nation. And then he says something here that is a little bit surprising. He's been comparing us, a chosen generation, so we're compared to a generation or a race, however you want to translate that. We're a royal priesthood, so he compares us to a priesthood. It's kind of new because it's royal, but it's a royal priesthood. Then we're a holy nation, compares us to a nation that's holy. But then he says his own special people. I, I don't know how to describe that. How are we special? We're his own special people. It's as if Peter comes to a place where he wants to describe more about who you are in Christ and what you really are, and he runs out of things to compare you to. And he says, you're his own special people, whatever that might mean. And I don't know. I don't know how to expound on it. But whatever it means, there's a way in which we are his special people, that God has chosen us. Now, not only does he say that you're his own special people, he then gives us what we're called to, He says, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into this marvelous light. God's called us that we would praise his name. Let us be a people who praise. I can say to you guys that one of my prayers for you, one of the prayers that I pray for you guys as a pastor for the church that I pastor is that we would be a people of praise. That praise would come from our hearts, not just our lips, but from our hearts. I'm not praying that we would be a people who would be raising our hands and loud and boisterous. I'm praying that we would really genuinely pray, praise God. And if that's loud and boisterous, that's loud and boisterous. If it's quiet, it's quiet, but that it would be real, genuine praise because that's who we are so that we can lift up that praise. Notice that you've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. You were called out of darkness. You weren't in the light and then called to be in the light. You were lost. You were, your feet were on the sand and Jesus moved you to the rock. You were in utter and complete hopelessness and he saved you and gave you the hope of eternity. You were in darkness and he has now brought you into the light. Verse 10, and here's where we'll end today. Who once were not a people, but are now of the people of God. And I love that thought. As we gather together, we look around this room, what is there that binds us together? There's all kinds of different people here. We're all different from different backgrounds and different places all around the world, but we're one people. We were not a people, but now we're a people. And people couldn't look at us and tell us, what is it that binds us together? If we just had a photograph, if we all huddled together and had a picture taken and pinned that up somewhere, maybe on Facebook and asked the question, what is it that all these people have in common? There'd be all kinds of guesses that would come. But looking at us, I don't know that they would come to that place that we are now God's people. We were not a people, but we are now a people. Meaning that, hey, I'm part of you, whether you like it or not. You're part of me, whether I like it or not. We who are not a people are now a people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. The idea of mercy, you remember earlier he talked about grace. I think it's in chapter one, verse three, where he says that we have grace reserved for us on the day of the revelation of Jesus. And isn't that an incredible thought? That God has grace, undeserved favor, reserved for me on the day that I die or the day that Jesus comes back for me. On the revelation of Jesus, I'm gonna receive grace. But now he talks about mercy. Grace is different than mercy. Mercy is connected to justice. Justice is when you get what you deserve. Every once in a while, you'll run into a Christian who will say, I want what I deserve. God needs to give me what I deserve. If you're going to demand that you get what you deserve from God, give me warning, and I'll get as far away from you as I can, so when the lightning bolt burns your body to a crisp, I won't be affected by it. Justice is when you get what you deserve, and because we are sinners, because our heart is black, because... we we need mercy, then God gives us mercy. Mercy is withholding justice. Mercy is where God says, I'm gonna give you what you deserve, and then God says, no, I'm not. That's mercy. When a judge says to someone, you should spend 20 years in prison for what you've done, but I'm gonna give you three, that judge showed mercy. Now, sometimes we agree with that judge, and sometimes we don't. Sometimes we say, I can't believe that that judge gave him mercy, but when you stand in front of God, Do you want justice from God or do you want mercy from God? And he says, you were a people who now are a people, but you weren't a people and you have mercy and you were someone who didn't have mercy before. Now, again, this tells us we come from a completely lost place. We come from darkness. We come from a place where we didn't have mercy and we now enter into a place where we have that mercy from him. And if we can truly understand who we are in Christ, maybe it will help us to live as we're supposed to, which is exactly where he goes. I said, we were done with that verse, but let me read one more. We'll recover this next week, but let me just read one more. Verse 11, beloved, I beg you. Notice the tenderness, beloved, and notice the pleading. Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, a stain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. Peter says, beloved, I'm begging you. You're a sojourner, you don't belong here abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul because of who you are, a royal priesthood, a holy generation, or a holy nation, a chosen generation. I'm getting them all mixed up. Because of who you are, abstain from those things. Live as the child of God that you're supposed to be, a royal priesthood. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you again for the continued work that you're doing in each one of our lives. We pray that as we pause here to think about who we are to really put our minds around the fact that you have called us as a chosen people as a chosen generation a chosen race that we are a royal priesthood we pray that we would live who we are thank you for your call on our lives thank you that you have loved us while we were yet sinners and died for us and thank you that you've put a call on each one of us that you've given us work that we would do. We thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.
1: Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living with Robert Furrow. We hope that our verse-by-verse studies truly help you to see that God is real. He wants a personal relationship with you. And His Word is life-changing. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, we invite you to join us at one of our two campuses. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus south of Palo Verde and I-10 meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 11 a.m. PCLAZ.org. That's PCLAZ.org, where you can make a secure one time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a recurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life, or do you have questions about salvation? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at Saved at and don't forget to follow us on social media. Instagram at Calvary Tucson or Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living TV Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. on KGUN 9. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.